0: Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence at cmlibrary.org.
1: Hey, listeners, welcome to this fall 2021 edition of Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to the written words, part of the Queen City Podcast Network, and the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. In this episode 262, we visit with Terry Roberts, author of My Mistress Eyes Are Raven Black, a literary mystery that explores the disturbing links some people will go to to protect racial purity and condemn those that are different, the ones they fear. The book is set on Ellis Island. The year is 1920. New York Harbor's immigration and public health authorities are slowly recovering in the war years when a young pregnant Irish woman disappears from the isolation hospital on Ellis Island. Stephen Robbins, a specialist in finding missing persons, is assigned to the case. Yet when he arrives at the isolation hospital, he discovers an inexplicable string of deaths and disappearances among immigrant patients and a staff that seems to be hiding a chilling secret. Silas House, author of Southernmost, had this to say about the book. Terry Roberts' new novel is a literary thriller of the highest order, lyrical and suspenseful, with characters you will long remember. This is a heart pounding, timely, and completely immersive read. It's also Roberts' finest hour. Before we jump into the uninterrupted interview today, I'd like to thank you for being here. We are grateful for your presence and uh, really appreciate your time. Join us here on the podcast. I'm your host, Landis Wade. I'm a recovering trial lawyer turned author turned podcaster of books and stories. And if you run out of things to do one day, you can check me out at uh, landiswade.com. Find out more about uh, me and uh, my writing. Speaking of writing, shameless plug here by the other sponsor of this podcast, which happens to be me. Uh, I have a novel coming out uh, in the spring of 2022. It's called Deadly Declarations. You can find out more about that at There's pre-order information there uh, for ebook and soon uh, print book as well. It's, uh, it's a novel that uh, explores a 250-year-old North Carolina mystery set in Charlotte, uh, which if solved uh, might change U.S. history, uh, possibly the first great American government conspiracy. John Adams called it one of the greatest curiosities and one of the deepest mysteries that ever occurred to him. And Thomas Jefferson called it spurious and an apocryphal gospel I'm talking about the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence which is the heart of this novel uh, but it's modern day set in a uh, retirement community where the reality of getting older is a combination of fear doubt humor and new life and where these characters that uh, I've invented transport readers to the courtroom and then to the Virginia countryside to prove that age is just a number when searching for and finding the truth. Hope you'll check that out at LandisWay.com. For everything related to the podcast, check out charlottereaderspodcast.com. We've got show notes on each episode uh, with images and links. We've also got a community blog there. Uh, if you're a writer, you can submit there. We've got a lot of great content. And speaking of great content, uh, we put out a book report every two weeks. It's free to sign up for, and uh, there's some free stuff you get when you sign up. You can check that out at the uh, podcast website. Uh, Hey, we won't spam you because, frankly, that takes way too much time. But enough of this prologue. Let's get to today's episode. Terry, welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much, Landis. It's
0: a pleasure to be here. First thing I have to say is I'm a huge fan of what you do, not just that you're a recovering trial attorney. you got to love that, right? But the fact that you've devoted so much of your life to literature. Ah, uh, you know, what's not to love. So yeah. the well, pleasure is all mine.
1: Thank you. I'm still in that recovering phase. And uh, I find that when I read books and talk with authors, it cheers me up. So that's great. That's um, wonderful. There yeah. you go. So congratulations on the book. Thank
0: you so much. This book was a real pleasure to work on, despite the fact that it has some grim material in it. Um, there are probably two strands that I was deeply involved in during the writing of the book. The first, of course, you you broached so beautifully in your introduction, which is this idea of xenophobia, of uh, eugenics-based racism, why we hate the other, fear the other. And that piece is something that I've long wondered about, worried about, and it, this book gave me the chance to think it I think hopefully at great depth about that subject and maybe approach answers, plural, to that question. The other thing that made the book somewhat pleasurable is that it is intended to be a good old-fashioned hard-boiled detective thriller um, circa the 1930s or 40s in America of the Dashiell Hammett and Raymond Chandler genre. And, And that part was a lot of fun. Um, that wasn't nearly as grim as the subject matter. And, and that made this book a pleasure to, to work on.
1: Yeah, and I, re- I really enjoyed reading it. Uh, and, and we're going to talk more about uh, the xenophobia and, and the discrimination and, and what Ellis Allen was like in the 1920s. But first, let's talk about the what if for the book. The what if is what we novelists ask ourselves, kind of like an internal prompt for the novel. So how did this what if come to you and what made you stick with it, become passionate enough to write a novel?
0: Oh, there you go. The what if in this case had to do with what what is it about us as human beings? Why is our species so susceptible to the temptation to, in some sense, act in a tribal way? Why do blue eyed people suspect brown eyed people? Why do brown eyed people fear blue eyed people? Now, that sounds like an exaggeration, of course. But what I mean for it to be is a metaphor for for what's troubled so much of human history, which is this idea that somehow we suspect, automatically suspect and reject the other. Now, how that became a novel is I began to think about where, not just geographically, but where in American history, does it seem to be so closely aligned? And and the one place that I came to, first of all, was Ellis Island, because of course, Ellis Island is this incredible icon in American history. It is a place that is central to so much of American experience, both as an entry point itself, but also as symbolic of all the entry points where people have sought to enter the United States. then what does that mean? How do we, those of us who are in some sense already here, why is it that we're so um, reluctant to allow others to enter in many circumstances? And that became the what if.
1: Yeah. And I want to talk more about the then and now when it comes to immigration and a little bit, uh, but first a little bit about, uh, you, when I told my wife that, uh, who I was interviewing, she said, Hey, I know that guy. <clears throat> he does this uh, thing called Padea, And, uh, my wife was a teacher. She took your seminar one time, and you're the director of the National Pedia Center in Asheville. Uh, and for those that don't know what the heck Pedia is, just just tell us. Tell us what it is.
0: Yeah. The, the short version. Of course, we could go on for hours. I know. What's we don't have time short? for that. Let's we'll <laughs> yeah. give the
1: abbreviated version. Yeah. Exactly.
0: The short version. Pedia is the Greek word for the nurturing of children. Uh, it's the same root as pediatrics, for example, and it has to do with how one generation our generation prepares the next generation to take their place in society and more particularly the signature piece of Pidea is what we call the Pidea seminar or the Socratic seminar and so our our work has a lot to do with how we prepare students um, through Socratic discussion for the critical thinking that we believe the modern world requires, meaning life in the 21st century. So how do we train students, a whole new generation of students, such that they're ready for this incredibly complex, uh, quickly changing, quite challenging life that lies ahead of them? And one piece of that, we think, is Socratic discussion. And in fact, we're recording this interview today. I'm actually in a school in Gastonia, North Carolina. at the same time we're having this conversation about creativity and about writing novels uh i'm i'm literally sitting in a school where we do this hard work day by day uh to help people understand what it's like to really prepare students for a life that we can't even begin to predict in so many
1: ways yeah that's great that's probably why janet was drawn to this she like me uh w- was a lawyer before she decided to do something else she went into teaching uh Fifth grade and used your Padea method and really enjoyed it. maybe that Socratic thing that we got exposed to in law school, which is not always you know the most enjoyable thing in law school to go through, but maybe for for the for the younger kids it does it does generate discussion. I'm just curious uh Terry, do you think uh this experience you've got in the Padea model, which forces uh individuals to do this sort of individual learning prior to asking questions and things is is a great way for a novelist to think about getting into a story?
0: Oh, I think so. I think there are a couple of, of strong connective points. One is that critical thinking. It's, it, it is the, the habit of living the hard questions. And I think one way to think about writing a novel is that you actually spend some years willing to uh, delve deeply in not only into your, the depths of your own subconscious mind, but almost societal Uh, conscious and subconscious mind. And and that passion for the question, I think, is what makes um, both the Padea seminar so vital and so important in the life of a school, but also in the life of a novelist. Because when you think about it, what else might you call the writing of a novel, except asking the same question day by day by day over several years. Um, certainly that's how I experience it. And so I think my background as an educator is what prepared me in a way for my life as a writer. Um, mm-hmm. the, the two are very strongly connected, I think.
1: Yeah. And listeners, we're going to be, uh, going to uh, Patreon after this and, uh, I'm going to be talking with Terry about, uh, Creativity and novel writing, he's the author of three celebrated novels. Uh, there'll be information about that in the show notes but uh Terry you're also uh you also say that you're raised uh by your grandmother who was born in eighteen eighty eight and she passed on to you the magic of the past, along with a grit and humor of mountain storytelling. And I, I just like, uh, you're also, I think, the ancestor of a bootlegger and a preacher. and I don't know how that comes together for you, some kind of split personality of a magical <laughs> kind. But uh, talk about this uh, influence on you of the oral tradition.
0: Well, I, I, I was raised in northern Buncombe County, north of Asheville. A lot of your listeners, of course, will know Asheville. Uh, in the country, meaning on on a a working farm or a farm that was close to you know, in that tradition, and my father's family had farmed in Madison County, where a lot of this fiction is set. Literally since 1800, there's been somebody named Roberts who was um, trying not to starve to death year by year by year, uh, growing livestock and all, all kinds of um, all kinds of food, and. My grandmother, my father's mother, born in 1888, came to live with us, near us, in a small house on the property that, where I grew up um, after her husband died. And that I, I was a year old when she came. In fact, I don't ever remember her not being there. And the reason I, I mention her, her name was Belva Anderson Roberts, is that she was, in addition to my father, she was that link back to the past. Um, and and imagine, if you will, her, her parents and grandparents were alive during the Civil War. Her lifespan began in the 19th century and lasted, overlapped with mine. I was born in 1956 in a way that made the oral tradition just as important, just as vital, just as compelling, terrifying, satisfying uh, when I was a boy as, you know, what we now think of as the media, as television, as the telephone, those kinds of things. So long before the cell phone, long before social media, there there was this oral media, if you will, and, and you were exactly right to call it the oral tradition because she was telling stories about my ancestors And and as as you mentioned, some of whom were preachers, some of whom were (laughs) bootleggers, some of whom, all of whom were farmers, um, and all of whom had this very lively, very vital sense of humor. So these stories, even the tragic stories, are infused with this notion that life is somehow both sad but also incredibly funny at the same time, Mm. challenging, tragic, but also uh, the only way we survive is by laughing at ourselves and at others, and, and so I hope, knock on wood, I hope that that same tone comes through in the novels. And, and yeah,
1: and, and you've given us, uh, Terry, here a link to the past as well with this novel. Um, one of your reviewers, Wayne Caldwell, author of Catalucci. Said that the book confronts the reader with important questions about American immigration policies and race, set at Ellis Island in the early 1920s, is nonetheless sharply relevant in today's America, which really kind of raises two questions for me. One is the setting, Ellis Island in the 1920s. The other are these questions about American immigration policies. But I'd like to first talk about the setting because, uh, y- you know, you have this vision of what Ellis Island might be like, what you might see if you go on a tour of New York, you know what it looks like today. But if you go online and look at the pictures, it's a very different sort of uh, rushed environment with lots of people, almost like a cattle call to some extent, you know, mm-hmm. with people coming through there. Describe for us that setting. It's more than one island. I didn't realize that either. And there's a lagoon. And mm-hmm. give us an idea of what it looked like in the 1920s.
0: Well, if in 1920, if you imagine a giant capital letter E, with three prongs. I can't really quite reproduce it, something right, like that. Right. And, uh, and Island One is where, is the Ellis Island that of popular culture and the popular imagination. It has the huge, um, very ornate, uh, welcoming building where uh, immigrants got off the ferry, and we'll talk more about this in just a few minutes. They went up a set of stairs into the, the Great Hall you know, where they were separated into groups and where they were interviewed. Uh, they were examined physically in several different ways. And so they had to pass a number of examinations. and And that building on Island one is is what we tend to think. it's where the it's where the movies that we've seen show us Ellis Island. But there were two more islands joined physically by a land bridge. The second island, island two, was the general hospital where immigrants were treated. For all kinds of, of diseases, uh, as long as those diseases or those conditions weren't contagious. And then the third island, Island Three, where, where My Mistress Eyes or Raven Black is actually set for the majority of the action, was the isolation hospital, it was called. And that's where immigrants were sent who had contagious diseases or who had uh, some sort of mental um, mental problem uh, mental or emotional problem it could be considered to be insane, for example. And, and so they, some of those wards on Island 3 were almost in some ways in, like prison wards, but most of them were like hospital wards. And the, it's the only difference being that they were kept in isolation, separate from perhaps their own families who had come with them. Uh, until they were deemed no longer a danger and then they were either sent back to their country of origin or they were allowed to go on and land in America. Um, the 1920s where, is the time frame for this novel and the other thing I should say is that the, after World War I and almost in some ways in reaction to World War I, we began to uh, put in place much more stringent immigration restrictions. And not long after the summer of 20, when this book is set, the first great immigration act in American history was passed, which limited, drastically limited, in some cases, the numbers of Europeans who could immigrate into the United States.
1: Yeah, and I want to come back to that in just a moment. Uh, The second part of this two-part discussion here, the setting and also the policies, uh, putting in the middle of it a little reading that you've got that's gonna give us a sort of a visual of uh what it was like to kind of be in that line coming up into the to the great hall and getting checked out by the doctors and and that kind of thing. And and I will say as an aside, it it was a a great setting for you on that third island to set all this action because it, it had this feeling of I'm not sure you can get out of this place. You know, it's, it's kind of, you know, you don't want to be on that third Island, but, but let's do this. Let's take the reading. Um, Anything you want to do to set the reading up? Uh, We've got the main character. I I mentioned him in the opening. Uh, His name is uh, Stephen Robbins. He's gone to the Island to investigate this disappearance of this, this young woman. And he decides to get in the line to kind of see what's going on. Right. And, and, Right. And, and then you can sort of pick it up with the reading and we'll see where it goes. So anytime you're ready, take it away. So this scene
0: occurs on Island One, which we described a moment ago, which is where immigrants debark from the ferry and come up the great, the, the great wide stairway into the main hall. And that stairwell is part of the system by which they are judged, if that's not too strong a term. There are doctors who work for the health service, standing at the various landings on that stairway, who watch the immigrants as they come up, and if they see the potential for some sort of debility, they actually take a piece of white chalk and they mark on the lapels of the clothing, men or women doesn't matter, and there's a there's a set of codes, and you can go online and look up what the codes are, uh, X. For example, appears for someone who appears to be mentally disabled <laughs> and perhaps even insane. Kid, and so our, so just by narrator, looking
1: at, just by looking at them, right? Just
0: by looking at you, the look in your eye. Um, I don't think I would so, get through
1: that. I don't think I'd get through that line without getting. Well,
0: me. I wonder myself, and okay. and so Stephen Robbins, the narrator, who's the same narrator, by the way, is a short time to stay here, an earlier novel he himself has a jagged scar down the middle of his face that from, from events that happened in that first novel. And so that becomes pertinent during this scene. And so Stephen is, has just been told something by his, his detective partner and lover, Lucy Paul, which has given him pause for thought. And so he wanders into a group of immigrants who are debarking from a ferry at the dock. When I did bother to look out and around me at the people I was forming into line with, I saw that many had changed into their best clothes for this occasion, dug into bags and boxes for their native garb, which only served to make them stand out like strange birds of an exotic plume. But many could offer only the stained and dirty clothes they'd traveled into the new world. And though they had dusted and scrubbed, Their best was still worn hard and smelled of shipboard cooking. Too many days and nights with little more than a basin of cold water to wash in. I glanced down at my own suit of clothes, and though it was clean and smelled faintly of detergent, I could boast the same shabby attempt to look presentable as they. The only difference was that most had a numbered tag tied to a buttonhole. The number of the ship manifest, their names had better appear on and were clutching their identification and travel papers. I had no tag, but I pulled a clutch of notes I'd been writing out of my pants pocket and my Bureau of Investigation badge from inside my jacket. Now I look the part, I remember thinking. Now I can pass up the stairs with the rest. And so I did. At the bottom of the fabled stairs that led up from the great doorway to the second floor main hall, we were divided into two swarms, one with women and children and the other with just men. The swarm of men were shoved into one line at the foot of the stairs by guards from the immigration service who barely bothered to even look at us. I was pushed in between what must have been a father and son, both of whom seemed desperate to stay together. So I surreptitiously pulled the son in front of me and returned their grateful smiles. Then we were on the stairs, mounting slowly up one step at a time as the doctors who stood at each landing regarded us each in turn quickly and efficiently, almost like meat inspectors, I thought. The father who I had reunited with his son had a weak leg and he was careful to take each step up with his left foot. To hide the lameness in his right but the doctor on the first landing wasn't fooled for a second he brought out his piece of chalk and marked the lapel of the man's suit perhaps his only suit in the world who were we those who stood in line from this one ship european certainly a half dozen vaguely familiar languages were being whispered around me including a rough Scots burr what else austrian italian not African, or at least no skin darker than Lucy's. Jewish? Nothing of the pure Nordic strain that the anti-immigration forces seemed to think populated the American heartland. Then the sun was on the landing in front of the first doctor who glanced up and down at him quickly and nodded him on past. I stepped up and suddenly felt thin and shopworn before the physician in his uniform. With barely a glance, he brought out his chalk to work on my jacket. I could feel the letter F being scribed against my chest, over my heart. He paused then, still grasping my lapel, and regarded my face closely, impassively, stared into my eyes ever so briefly, and then the chalk again. I could feel the label X for deranged. Ludmilla Kushar was right, I thought. It's the psychotic ward for me.
1: That was, that was a great read. Uh, also, it, it leads very well into the, to the second question I wanted to talk about here, which was the immigration policy of the time. You know, I always ha- had this thought, Terry, I don't know if it's from popular lore, the way people, uh, you know, want to talk about uh, history in, in such a positive way that maybe the borders were more open back then uh than they are now that uh, you know it's a land of opportunity melting pot everybody come on you we'll just let you in but this novel reveals uh some things that uh i didn't realize you talk about the immigration act of 1917 and there's <laughs> chapter 27 just starts out with a long list of conditions as they put them that uh you know would prevent somebody from coming in alcoholics anarchists, contract laborers criminals convicts epileptics feeble-minded idiots illiterates imbeciles and the list goes on and on and on um, did it surprise you how strict it was at that time when you started digging into this
0: yeah it really did it and i think that this time right after world war during and after world war one represented a real change uh, up until probably the turn of that century, uh, 1900, the borders had been more open, and in fact, uh, you, except for you know Chinese laborers who were brought into the West primarily to work on the railroad and who eventually became persona non grata in the United States, generally speaking, almost any Europeans could enter the country at will. Uh, that changed after World War One, and part of part of the reason of course i think was the war the other reason was that the 1920s in america was the high watermark of the eugenics movement the idea that there were some racial profiles that were by their very nature more intelligent more cultured more civilized than others and that nordic strain that i mentioned in that passage is kind of a code word for what the eugenics um, proponents of the 1920s believe was the purest form of the most civilized human being, and and that sadly, tragically, uh, actually informed the beliefs of Adolf Hitler and Nazi Germany of the 1930s. And so, in fact, Hitler wrote to one of these American, quote, sociologists and said, uh, uh, that his book was Hitler's greatest inspiration, and and that if that doesn't terrify you, it should, um, mm-hmm. and and so yeah, we were beginning to ask ourselves who were we as Americans, and and who were we going to be and become in the future, and in so doing, were there races of people that we wanted to exclude? Um, I will say that I began working on this project well before the presidential election of 2016 when, when immigration became such a hot button issue. Uh, I was already well into this and, and even, even then, even when it did become uh, so such a hot potato in current politics, I was still asking a fundamentally human question, not a political question. Because for me, the human question is what, why is it that we fear the other, uh, the he or she who is not like us? And and that's still my concern, you know, all, these years later.
1: Yeah, and and it's uh, although it, it's a sad commentary on, on the times uh, then and now when we do this analysis that you describe, you know, fear of the other. It's great for a suspense novel (laughs) because you know, at the beginning, you know, he's going to find out why this woman is missing and he starts to realize, and I'm not giving anything away because he starts to put some pieces together early on that the the kind of people that are disappearing are the paupers and the pregnant women and the people that uh, are just different, perhaps uh, in some respect, they don't look like the kind of people that the ones who are behind this plot want them to look like. And so, um, Great, great setting, as I say, for for a novel to come up with that. Uh, but let's talk about the cover just a second. Uh, My mistress' eyes are raven black. There's a picture of a woman with her head down um, on the cover. I'm wondering. I know you don't always, as an author, have the ability to, to, to. Did you fight to have Ellis Island somewhere on the cover of this book? Well,
0: we talked about it, and one of the yeah. options was a you know an aerial photograph of Ellis Island from the twenties, and and that was a possibility. Um, a, a, a second option was a picture of a woman in period costume running up a set of stairs uh which had a kind of mysterious quality what's she running from what's she running toward who's through whose eyes are we seeing her but the third candidate which is the current cover is the one that won out in part because um if it represents something specific from the novel it might well be lucy paul who becomes stephen robbins partner and eventually uh, his romantic interest uh, and she may be wearing uh, the the shawl of, of the missing woman who who starts all this to begin with but it also had a mysterious quality um, that the the editors liked that I liked it. It had a feel of something that uh, you want to know what this woman's thinking. You want to know what she's feeling, and if there's a there's almost a sense of loss, um, maybe of dread. Um, so so yeah. Yeah. so it's it's those unknowns, you know, that that led us to this cover, I think.
1: Right. So we've got Stephen Robbins. He's a protagonist. Uh, we know about him. Lucy Paul, that like you just mentioned, she's every much is equal in this book. She's a heroine, a nurse who becomes an undercover assistant to Stephen. And not only is she helping him to try to solve this mystery, uh, as you said, they they fall in love. So this is as much a love story as it is a mystery, is it not?
0: I think so. And I think part of what attracts the two of them to each other is the fact uh, and again i don't want to give away too much but i I do think it's important um she admits to being mixed race at one point she actually uses the word mulatto which is not precise but it, it it's this her signal to him that she her her background is much more complicated than he knows and his response to that not that many pages further on is that he is himself a mongrel. He's a mixture of so many things. And I would argue, as I would argue most of us are, you know, whether we want to admit it or not. um, If you delve into our family histories, what you discover of course is not a mixed bag. I would never call it that, but what you discover is a much richer, um, more exotic um, gene pool than, than many of us might even suspect. And so, and to me, that's part and parcel of the of the story, right? This is an exploration of what does, in fact, the other mean? And um, the other, the closer we look, we realize that we are the other. And mm. you know, in many instances,
1: yeah. One of the antagonists, of course, is the setting, as you've described it. Another uh, one of the is or the suspects that uh, in the book, those that are possibly involved in doing uh, you know, the disappearing acts to, to the young women. One of those suspects is a head nurse. Her name is Blanche Taylor. Uh, talk about Blanche. She's a, she's a sweet grandmotherly type, right?
0: There, there was a, a woman in North Carolina history um, who poisoned um, a number of people. And um, I had a dear friend who was a psychologist at Central Prison who knew her Uh, on death row, and I can remember, this man's name was Jack McCall, I can remember Jack telling me that if you walked into her cell and sat down and spoke with her, you were convinced almost immediately that you were in the presence of the archetypal grandmother, this sweet, loving, kind, caring, Christian spirit um, the only problem is, of course, is that she killed a number of people. <laughs> um, and so I, I'd always had that in the back of my mind, you know, Jack's description of her, because he himself was a trained psychiatrist. And so he was fascinated by her personality, that she could she could appear to be one thing and at the same time be something very, very different. And so that that description lies behind this character, Um she is i like to think uh almost um irresistible and when one first meets her and it's only as you begin to to get a glimpse beneath the surface of her personality that you realize something's terribly wrong um and and part of part of her rationale is is her um self Um, self-proclaimed christianity and this this book is not a condemnation of christianity but but in the case of blanche taylor her it's it's part of her rationale for the rejection of others they're not good enough they're not uh true americans and they're not of our faith and of our kind and so of course she she is a perversion of christianity i would say
1: yeah, so yeah, exactly. The kind of the kind of suspect that makes uh, for a good mystery novel there. Mm-hmm. Um, so interesting quote, we're running out of time here, but interesting quote from the book, quote, we think there's a conspiracy of some kind going on at Ellis Island. Has been since the war. And if we look hard enough, we find out that there are forces there who are doing their own brand of immigration restriction, keeping out the unwashed and unwanted. That raises an interesting question. And I'm just wondering do you think such conspiracies existed in the 1920s so how much of this is truth and how much is the author's imagination where does it come together
0: yeah most of it's the author's imagination i i never found any evidence that there were active conspiracies either on ellis island or at other points of entry which were um, by those who were employed by the federal government to manage those facilities to in some way limit who got in and who didn't. Now there were all sorts of you know highly politically charged restrictions on who got in and who didn't, uh, but that didn't lead to uh, you know serial killings by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. So this this is a, the the murder mystery part of this is strictly fiction, as far as I know. Uh, yeah. Nobody has come up to me and said, "Aha!" You know. <laughs> um
1: well the good thing is it didn't sound like fake news because it kind of rung true you know you could sort of sense how the way you set it up that it could you know it could happen so that's great hey we only have time for you know maybe uh one writing life question here because you and i are going to jump over to patreon in just a minute listeners that's at okay. patreoncom forward slash charlotte readers podcast you can come listen there to authors talk about the craft and business of writing but before we go there uh terry just one one uh One last question I asked this of authors who've written a number of books. If you could tell your younger writing self something of value based upon what you've learned during this journey of writing that might have helped that younger writer, what would it be?
0: It's a great question. And, And I do get asked that occasionally. And my answer almost always is enjoy the process. And by that, I mean by far and away, for me, the most pleasurable and most rewarding aspect of making novels is the actual writing. It's that lonely, long-distance running of sitting in front of the laptop, in this case, um, and living with those characters and recording their adventures and their discoveries and their trials and tribulations. To me, that as lovely as this conversation is, and you know, it would only be better in person, you know, with a glass of something, Landis. But as lovely as this is, the the real reward to me is in the day by day by day making of, crafting of the story, and because there's no way to predict whether your book will be published or read or appreciated. Um, to me, that's really fundamental. And if you enjoy the writing, you'll keep on doing it regardless.
1: Yeah, I don't know what it is. My, my wife asked me yesterday, said, so "How did you sit all day yesterday at the computer and and, and write?" Because I'm sort of wrapping up my next novel, and I felt the momentum moving forward and all this kind of thing. And 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 the only thing I would say is it's really bad for your back and your yeah. hamstrings. <laughs> you know, if you yeah, don't if you don't get up and move around, you got to make yourself get up and move around. But I I get it. Enjoy the experience. Enjoy the journey that's that's great advice uh hey listeners um you can check out more about uh, terry at uh and his book here uh, my mistress eyes of raven black and uh, all about him at our show notes charlarspodcast.com just check that out uh terry it's been really uh great to have you on Charlotte's podcast
0: thank you so much landis i very much appreciate the opportunity and it's a delight to talk with you
1: well that's it for today another fine author giving voice to the written words. You can subscribe to this podcast for free at Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and most any podcast platform you like to listen to your podcast on.